Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. As we mentioned in the main episode this week, we are releasing the extended cut of our interview with David Rosenthal uh, on the future of startups. So take a listen. It's a lot of great conversation, and I hope everyone has an enjoyable Thanksgiving break. All right, listeners, and uh, welcome to this week's main conversation. Uh, this week is going to be a little bit different than previous conversations as we're going to be talking about the future of startups. Uh, so what does exactly that mean? Well, at the lab and me personally, I spent a lot of my time looking at startups, uh, where they're building, you know, who's investing in them as really as an indicator of uh, innovation and where consumer attention is shifting. Uh, and so this is kind of one of those, you know, lenses that we use at the lab just to help guide our overall strategy uh, and to really help our brands innovate. Uh, and today we're going to be talking with, uh, I would say, an expert in the space uh, to help us break down, you know, really the the startup landscape over these past eight months and, you know, COVID's impact on it. And so without further ado, I would love to introduce David Rosenthal, a uh, longtime investor and co-host of Acquired to the show. So David, welcome to Floor 9. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. You know, as a longtime listener of Acquired, it's like a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great. There's nothing I love more than uh, podcasting and investing in startups. So this is going to be a blast. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So just to kick this thing off, um, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, your career, uh, and just all the work that you've been doing with you know startups investing? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Um, let's see. So I started my career uh, in New York as an investment banker right out of college. I did um, was a telecom media technology investment banker at uh, at UBS out of college, and um, then so I was an analyst there after my two years there i uh it was 2009 when i finished my analyst program so there were not a lot of jobs uh available and um fortunately one of our clients uh when uh, when i was in banking was um dow jones uh, which was part of news corp of course and so i moved over to dow jones and i joined dow jones in the wall street journal for about a year uh, it was kind of a random career departure, but has now come full circle now that I'm a, a like full time business media podcaster <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, and investor. Uh, who you know who could have connected the dots? Looking forward at the time. Uh, so I did that for about a year. Uh, worked on the Wall Street Journal on the business side, uh, and then I got into venture. Uh, so I moved to Seattle and I joined a venture firm called Madrona Venture Group. They're the largest VC in Seattle. Um, they were the first investors in Amazon, which really put them on the map a long time ago. Good we always used to always used to joke that we're still looking for <laughs> that uh, that next one. Uh, may never find it, but they've done incredibly well. Yep. Fantastic investors. They're investors in Snowflake, which of course has been enormous now recently, among many other great companies. So I spent. Uh, seven years in total there really went through the whole apprenticeship program as a as a venture investor started as an associate uh, all the partners there took me under their wing they're still great friends and mentors of mine today um, and uh, and then grew over time they sponsored me I went to business school at Stanford uh, and then while I was at Stanford I um, I worked at Stardex which was the in-house still exists is the in-house sort of um, uh, Y Combinator for internally for Stanford students and faculty and alumni uh, as an accelerator program. Uh, that was really fantastic. I got to work with them in the early days. Uh, and then I also at the same time 
spent my summer in business school interning at Meritech Capital. A lot of folks don't know Meritech. Uh, they're kind of... Oh, so yeah, I haven't heard of them before. Yeah, they're, they're sort of intentionally under the radar screen, but uh, they're one of, if not the very best sort of growth investor out there, sort of late stage venture. Think, you know, anywhere from Series C to pre-IPO, uh, they were one of the original funds, one of the very first funds in Silicon Valley that popped up to start doing these sort of pre-IPO rounds. After the days, you know, back in the 90s, it used to be startups raised <laughs> a rent around and then 12 months later, they were going public. <laughs> yeah, it's changed days. a little bit. <laughs> it's changed a little bit. Um, so they were, they actually uh, co-led the Series B in Facebook with, uh, with Greylock. Uh, that's one of their best investments ever, but just fantastic companies roblox salesforce looker tableau you just go down the list uh, meritech's in in most all of them so i got to spend my summer with those guys which was fantastic um uh, and then and then went back to madrona spent a few more years there left and started my own fund and and now i i mostly invest on my own as a angel investor and advisor to startups but i've seen everything from you know the incubator days to classic seed series a uh to growth rounds and uh um things have changed a lot <laughs> yeah so um overqualified uh i feel like <laughs> is um is is a summary there so like that's fantastic and that's you know a pretty uh interesting route that you've had you know kind of bouncing around uh, all different parts of the startup e- ecosystem and so uh, i'm super excited to have you on obviously and uh, just dive into this conversation so first up i think the one question uh, that i want to really just like level set the conversation with is with the pandemic how has i would say startup investing changed have we seen a pullback over these past 8 months um you know is it limited to certain like rounds like are we seeing later stage rounds become more interesting for companies uh, or you know um uh, funds to invest in like what have you just seen over these past 8 months when it comes to just like covid's impact on startup investing yeah it's been a wild roller coaster uh that I could not have predicted. I mean, the end state where we are now is this is, you know, I've now been uh, in venture investing professionally for over 10 years. And mm-hmm. this is the hottest, most go-go market for venture investing at almost every stage. Some are hotter than others right now. We can talk mm-hmm. about that, that I have ever seen. <laughs> so uh, what, like, so I guess, what what do you mean by, by, by hotness? Because I would say uh, our audience have, has no idea like, what that means. Is that just like there's a lot of people bidding to get into certain rounds or there's a lot more yeah. supply? Like startups I, I would say it, at every degree of the chain, uh, companies okay. being started, uh, fundraising rounds uh, being, being raised by those companies mm-hmm. at large dollar amounts at high valuations. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then for venture firms themselves also raising their own funds. There's just an incredible, there already has been an incredible amount of capital that has come into the venture asset class over the last 10, 15 years. But if anything, I thought at the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of folks thought, oh no, this is going to be bad. This is going to be a negative shock to the system. Capital is going to dry up. It has been the opposite. There has been even more coming in and we can talk about why that's been, but uh, it's been crazy. Why do you think that is? Because I agree with you. My initial read on the scenario, just like media dollars and budgets being pulled back, is the same thing would happen from venture because businesses needed to support their employees. They needed to make you know their their projected sales goals or revenue margins, whatever it might be. So, what do you think is causing essentially like a surplus or a boom? In, yeah. Uh, well, startups? I think it's 
I, I think it's two, um, two factors, uh, both of which were potentially foreseeable at the start of the pandemic, if you'd thought about it, but were, were hard to see. Uh, one is that I think the, the biggest thing, just from a very macro perspective, that's caused the, um, I don't want to say inflation of a bubble because I don't know that it is a bubble, <laughs> but the inflation of venture over the last 10 years has been interest rates and central banks taking interest rates down to basically zero. And, mm-hmm. you know, you would ask like, well, what does that have to do with venture investing? What it means is that for LPs, for the actual limited partners, the, the dollars of the investors that go into venture funds, so these are university endowments, these are foundations, these are pension funds, large pools of capital that are looking to invest and grow those uh their their capital under management um there hasn't been a good alternative for growth except something like venture or growth stocks in the growth equities in the public markets because fixed income and relatively safer or safer or less riskier investments across the spectrum of things they can invest in the yields on that have gone to zero or negative in terms of real terms and so if you're you know say I don't know the uh, CalPERS, the California uh, State Employee Pension uh, um, uh, Pension Fund, and you need to grow your assets. You need to grow your pension fund in order to pay out uh, pay out pensions to employees. If you want growth, there's no place else to look except for startups, technology companies, and so that's caused both people who already were existing investors in the venture asset class to put more dollars in. And people who historically have not been investing in the asset class to move in and come in either as LPs and funds or to start investing directly. Uh, and so bring this back to COVID, um, at the beginning of COVID, everybody thought this is going to spark more conservatism. People are going to pull back from venture. It's been the opposite because governments continued to lower rates <laughs> <laughs> and continued to inject money into economies. And so as a result, people have just kind of thrown their hands up and said, all right, well, I guess I'm going to buy growth stocks and invest in venture. Um, and then, it, so I'd say that's one factor. And then on the other side um, has been company creation. Uh, all companies that were, you know, uh, existing before the pandemic, some obviously benefited hugely, like Zoom, Amazon, and you know plenty of other uh, older non-technology businesses saw some tailwinds as well. But lots, lots have seen plenty of headwinds, and there's been lots of carnage in the economy. I think there's been a view that um, this is such a sea change for the economy going forward that it's new firms that are going to get started that are started with these assumptions baked into them that are going to serve companies like I saw you guys had Phil Libin from mm-hmm on the show. Uh, you know, that's a company that pre-pandemic sure would have been interesting post-pandemic when they started. It's like, no, this is a necessity. And so people have realized, okay, now is the time to actually go fund all these new companies that are going to get started. So I am just curious to like, just to hear from you, like what are some of those areas that you're just seeing starting to pop uh, or trends that are out there that, you know, are going to redefine what the startup investing landscape is going to look like uh, going forward? Yeah, there's, um, well, I could talk about some big trends and, and then maybe some some micro examples. For the tech industry specifically, one very, very salient uh outcome of that or consequence of that is that remote work is here to stay even Mm -hmm. post-pandemic companies both existing companies and especially new startups that were started they're now they've realized that this is such a boon for them you can recruit 
software developers, you can recruit product managers, you can recruit designers, data scientists all around the world instead Mm -hmm. of just in San Francisco or just in New York or just in Seattle, wherever you happen to be located. So, okay, this is going to change particularly the tech industry's HR model forever. Well, given that that's happened, you now need a new paradigm for team building for companies, right? Like it used to be at these companies, uh, you know, if you uh if you know or you can imagine like there was lots of you know like hey uh let's all go do a team building event hr would say you product team which might include five engineers a product manager a designer maybe some data scientists um here's a company credit card and once a month you guys go out like go go karting go to a bar go to a restaurant go do something go spend time together and do team building and then you'd be doing physical offsites you know maybe more regularly well, that's not going to happen in the same ways anymore. So a company I'm actually an angel investor in up in Seattle called Mystery, uh, they've started offering remote team building events as a service to companies. Uh, and it's cool. taken off like wildfire because, you know, in the old days, you just hand, hand the credit card, like I was saying to a team. Now yep. you're not going to say, hey, you team leader, um, how about you organize an awesome Zoom event for <laughs> your team and run it and have it not suck and have everybody hate it? Like that's never right. going to happen. <laughs> so now Mysteries popped up and it's this service that can do this for teams. So they've got uh, company-wide at Amazon, at Apple, at Microsoft, lots of teams using this. Um, I think that's here to stay. So anything kind of in that category, that's one big trend. Um, what about like social impact? Do you see that becoming a category where we're going to start to see more investment? Obviously, you know, this year, the whole idea of like global warming is yeah. has taken hold as a very mainstream conversation. It is a top priority for, you know, um, scientists and it's like the global economy. Uh, and I wonder if that is going to be like a trend or an environment where we're, start, we're, we're going to start to see more talent go towards of maybe solving like these real big challenges that'll impact like the globe versus maybe going to work for like a Facebook or, you know, um, one of those companies that, that that's essentially where, where you would go if you were looking to change the world maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, totally. I, I would say this, this is another big trend that's happening, um, in entrepreneurship and it's, uh, you know, the probably 15 years ago or so now, there was a big boom in venture and startups around clean tech uh, yep. and green investing. Um, and that didn't actually end too well. Uh, really? It didn't okay. work out. There were lots of companies that got funded. Now, what that uh, what that boom was about was like infrastructure type stuff, new mm-hmm. types of energy funding, big capital intensive projects. And I think what the venture industry learned and the reason why a lot of those companies didn't work was that level of infrastructure is so capital intensive that that should really be the realm of like governments and (laughs) especially, uh, but also, you know, big utilities, energy companies and the like, uh, that is, you're talking billions of dollars of capital and infrastructure build out that's not what venture capital is really equipped to do yeah i'll talk about the vision fund where it's like they're just throwing billion dollar investments (laughs) like it's nothing indeed even then it might not be enough capital um so i think what's different this time is you're seeing a lot more software companies being built around this and this is a consequence of you know the whole mark andreessen now old uh uh, I think it was a Wall Street Journal op-ed about software is eating the world that's become pervasive. So uh, a friend of mine, for instance, started a company um, 
uh, here in the Bay Area uh, that is a new a reinsurance company for fire insurance uh, in uh, in California. Uh, now with climate change and uh, it's been in the headlines, the amount of you know fire season in California has gotten longer. It's gotten more frequent uh, and it's been terrible. There's been terrible devastation from the wildfires out here. Um, you know, what approach to that could be like, well, okay, we need new technologies to prevent fire or build a, you know, build infrastructure, all that. Um, not that that's not important and necessary. This approach though is, is my friends have said, Hey, we, the current insurance industry isn't set up to deal with this. Like their models that they're using assume a devastating fire season once every like hundred years in California. <laughs> Instead it's happening once every two years. Uh, and so we can retrain these models using artificial intelligence and ML and all of the great advances that have come from the tech industry, we can turn that in on insurance and then we can more accurately price these policies. Like right now you can't even really get fire insurance anymore in California. Well, that's horrible. We can price it appropriately. We can make it available again. And then that can start to change things with software. That's the type of thing that the venture capital community is super well equipped to fund. That's fascinating because, you know, I look at that as, Really, you know, if we kind of kind of pull back to our brands, like looking at your product and seeing maybe from like a climate perspective, like if you can build a product that is suitable for that like environment, because, for example, we have some insurance brands. Um, I'm not sure if they are thinking about getting into fire insurance, um, but that would be, I think, a good in like way to expand their portfolio uh to suit a need for modern for modern times um so if anybody from the team is listening you yeah. have a free idea or uh, go uh, go talk to david go talk can, to, uh, you... kettle is the name of yeah, the company kettle. go talk um, to them um, that's fantastic the, the only other uh, real quick the, the other big trend that i'm seeing um uh isn't as much related to covid right now uh i think this was happening before but is is just uh fintech and and finance uh is there are lots of disruption. There's lots of disruption happening in the startup world around that right now. Things, you know, challenger banks like Chime, new brokerages like Robinhood. These companies have very quickly come into the financial part of the consumer financial part of uh, the ecosystem of the economy and said, hey, the trust that consumers have in banks and financial institutions is at an all-time low right now. We can provide much better products driven by software and get rapid adoption and manage you know, people's assets. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And of course, a big corner of that is crypto and uh, everything that's happening in, in that space, which in many ways is still the Wild West, but is also starting around this whole fintech revolution to become more mainstream. And I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, there's plenty of early stage companies building incredible DeFi apps out there. And I wouldn't be surprised if a few years from now, you know, Bitcoin crypto goes from this like, oh, crazy, you know, <laughs> Silicon Valley thing to a lot more mainstream. Right. And what, what, what exactly is DeFi? Uh, it's, um, distributed finance uh, so it's it's basically it's an umbrella term for taking any uh, all parts of the financial system that were previously centralized so think mm -hmm. you know banking for instance uh, and distributing it in a in a non-centralized fashion over uh, many of many DeFi apps use ether as the um, got it as the blockchain uh, underneath it 
Um, so I'm quickly equipping my te- technical knowledge here. Uh, but basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm right the, there with that's you. That's, that, yeah. that's about as uh, deep as I know. Uh, I can name some of the currencies and I understand how blockchain works. But if you want to get into the mathematical business <laughs> of how data is flows, that's that, that is a bit outside of my my league. But that's interesting. Right. And so like, we're seeing a lot of this innovation happen. And I think one of the biggest challenges for for brands of, you know, like that that we work with has always been this idea of, you know, building versus buying. Uh, you know, there are two different approaches, you know, to kind of drive innovation through it, through like your business. And I am curious to know from you, because you have now spent years analyzing what makes a successful acquisition on the acquired podcast. What does it take for an acquisition to, to be successful, especially within a larger uh, organization that might not be as, you know, equipped or culturally relevant, than, <laughs> say, like, you know, like a, a startup is? No, uh, I would say, oh, well, it's a fantastic question. And, um, that was the original impetus for Ben and I starting the acquired podcast was to mm-hmm. try and understand that. And of course, acquired over time has morphed into, you know, IPOs. And now we just tell the stories of great companies, but this is always at the heart of it. Um, you know, I think it's, um, it's very easy to point to, uh, lots of examples of acquisitions that, uh, failed to live up to the hype or disappointed. And, yep. um, you know, there've been studies out there by like McKinsey and others that, you know, some very high percentage, I don't know, 70, 80% percent of M&A out there destroys value. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty I, high percentage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so point being, it's easy to throw stones, but when it works, it works incredibly well. And that's what mm-hmm. we've seen on the podcast. And, and I would say it roughly, um, there are two um, main genres of acquisitions working well. Uh, not that there aren't plenty of other ways to do it or exceptions, but um, the two big buckets that we find are either one where you're buying a, a bigger company is buying a high growth, smaller company that is on its own, a very viable business with a large TAM total addressable market that it is only very minutely penetrated in thus far. And the resources, mostly the capital resources uh, of the bigger company that it can lend to the smaller company can help accelerate the penetration of that TAM. Uh, And the perfect example of this is Instagram, you know, Facebook buying Instagram uh, and just everything that's happened since, I mean, a billion dollars for Instagram, which was a crazy amount to pay at the time, you know, by analyst estimates now. Instagram is probably worth at least $150 billion within Facebook, if not more like 200 plus. Um, the key to those types of acquisitions is don't mess up the magic. <laughs> Leave <laughs> the business, the product, especially the product alone. Like if it's working and it's already getting a high rate of adoption, don't try and impose anything on it. Like the magic mm-hmm. is happening. Instead, what you want to do is help grow the business. And again, part of that is, like I said, often just like making capital resources available that Mm -hmm. the the smaller company wouldn't have otherwise. Part of it too, in the Facebook, Instagram case is, is perfect of plugging in revenue infrastructure into the company. So Facebook had built this incredible ad, uh, you know, both delivery platform, but, but also buying platform Mm -hmm. and, plugging Instagram into that meant Instagram didn't have to build that meant years of acceleration, uh, for the company. 
Um, and that was great. So I would say that's all sort of one bucket. The other bucket of acquisitions that we've seen work incredibly well is the complete opposite of that, where you're buying a company that is a has a, a point technology or um, component uh, of a larger system within the buyer. And in that case, you want to integrate it and adopt that technology. And it's a superior component or technology versus what you have in-house. You want to integrate that as deeply as possible, as quickly as possible. And some of those acquisitions can be just as valuable. I mean, the biggest one we were joking about <laughs> pre-show uh, when we before we hit record uh, is Apple Silicon within Apple. You know the the chips that Apple's making. You know, with their iPhone and iPad chips, the A series chips, and now the M series chips in the MacBook. That was an acquisition. They acquired a company called PA Semi for I think about three hundred million dollars uh, a little over ten years ago. Um, like not a lot of money. And it's that team and that ARM-based technology, those chip designs from that company that are now probably, maybe arguably the strongest differentiation of Apple products, period, responsible for many, many billions of dollars of revenue. I think I think that's one thing a lot of people don't understand about Apple is that they buy a lot of companies. They do. And they're very good at it. Um, one, they're good at not telling people about it because it's very locked up. Um, but they're very good at finding companies, buying companies and integrating them into, uh, their business. So that way they can, you know, essentially take advantage of it very strategically. Yeah. I mean, most people have never heard of PA semi, uh, right. and Apple prefers it that way, <laughs> but yeah. yes, it was an acquisition and all of the Apple Silicon innovation has come from that. Yeah. I think that's something that like is largely more, like more companies can maybe like, like learn from or think about is that, you know, it's a real skill set to identify buy and then integrate, um, companies in certain ways to make them work for you. Because I think in, at least from our side of the business, we read the headlines and that's really about all we get. You know, we, we have the TechCrunch article, we have the Verge article, maybe a podcast about it, but we don't really get to the, you know, like the inside look into really, you know, how are they threading these companies together, if at all, right? Yeah. It could be essentially it's just left alone and it's as rebranded as Apple and, you know, they come together, you know, when they need to. And I think in those cases, particularly with technology acquisitions like that, um, the re- identifying what the real critical asset is being clear eyed about that and making sure it succeeds Mm -hmm. is important. And most of these technology companies, it's the people. So if you look at the people, I haven't looked at LinkedIn recently, but all of the people within PA semi, at least all the key people, (laughs) Apple made sure to retain them. If they had just bought PA semi and then all these incredible chip designers had left, it wouldn't have gotten them much. Um, And so I think that's something that a lot of tech companies have really figured out when it's the people who are important, yeah, you have to buy the company, but then you also have to be prepared to spend a lot of money in salary and retention and bonuses Mm -hmm. for the folks who you're buying if they are the key assets. And uh, all of the big tech companies are not afraid to do that. Right. Interesting. Well, that's some good insight, uh, (laughs) you know, into uh, how that process works. And so I just want to change gears here just for a second. Um, so we know DoorDash has filed their S1, Airbnb is filing yep. their S1, Uber and Lyft, you know, went public last year or the year before. I don't know anymore. Time's a flat circle. Um, <laughs> what we've seen with these companies is most of them are going public without being profitable. And so this brings me to a core question, you know, that I think this is what defines startups way back when from Paul Graham about this idea that startups equal growth meaning the top priority for a startup is to grow at all costs, no matter what. 
Um, do you think this is changing in the startup ecosystem? Do you think just given the pandemic and how businesses have had to flex their business models and change and adapt that putting maybe profits and revenues above growth might be something that is more of a, you know, an interest into new founders that are building a company? Yeah. Well, I actually think there's a couple different, um, trends going on here that we can maybe Mm -hmm. disentangle one and kind of how you were framing the question about like, you know, the unprofitability of Uber and Lyft and and the like at their IPOs and and now DoorDash in their IPO coming up. I do think in the aftermath of that, there certainly was a feeling in Silicon Valley that like, Hey, maybe we need to, um, maybe we need to make sure that our unit economics are solid and there was less focus on that before. Maybe, before we think about tapping the public markets, we do need to think about, do we at least have a viable story to profitability and why this is going to be a good, you know, cash flow generating business over time. So I think that's happened. I think that's, that's just a tick in a talk that happens naturally with cycles in venture. Um, so I wouldn't overread the impact of, or overestimate the impact of that on, on Silicon Valley. More interesting. And I think different from before is a is a different trend which is that uh that's happened in the last few years which is people have realized that entrepreneurship writ large is bigger than anybody ever would have expected i mean when ben and i started the acquired podcast we just did it for fun and because we thought it would we would learn something from it but we you know we joked we were like i don't know maybe there are a thousand people out there that would listen to this like uh, who who is that interested in startups it's a pretty insular world and now we've got, you know, many, many tens of thousands of people who listen in this and we're just a small part of the ecosystem. The point being that lots of people have taken entrepreneurship and starting companies and starting entrepreneurial endeavors uh, uh, as realized it's a viable path uh, to what they can do for a living. The result of that is that there's now a whole spectrum of what it means to be a startup. So Paul Graham's quote that startups equal growth well, that is a specific class of startups, you know, call it the Ubers, the Lyfts, you know, the, and those tend to be the highest growth, biggest potential, largest total addressable market um, companies that receive the bulk of venture dollars. Um, but there are lots and lots of other companies being started out there that have different priorities. Like mm. acquired itself is a great example. <laughs> ben and I are, you know, it's a business now. Uh, ben and I run it. It's a two-person LLC. We never don't have any ambitions for it to be anything different. Yep. Growth is really important to us, but it's not the most important thing. And we'll build a nice business doing that. Um, what's cool is this is actually like a spectrum. And some of the businesses with that same ethos have actually become really, really big businesses, some of them even attracting the interest of venture capitalists, even though growth at all costs over profitability or over other things isn't their priority. So I think about um, the most famous of these is Basecamp, 37 Signals, those guys. Uh, they have built a very large business uh, without growth as the priority. Um, uh, Doist, the company behind Todoist, uh, Amir has built his company in the same way. And, you know, in many ways, I don't know if Wade and, and Vlad, Wade from um, Wade from Zapier and Vlad from Webflow, some of the two biggest, hottest no-code tools out there, I don't know what their philosophy would be about this, but they've built those companies on very little 
capital. They both raised a very small amount of capital to start. They didn't need all these huge steroid injections of venture dollars to build companies, which meant that they were building them profitably and with cash flows along the way. So that's just a really different, interesting thing that's happened over the last couple of years in the startup ecosystem. That's fascinating. I mean, to your point, spectrum of, um, I guess with anything in life, right? There's, it's not, it's, it's not black and white. Um, and it is interesting just to see, I don't know what can be built with, with so little, uh, yeah. cause it, uh, notion is another great example, yep. super hot company right now, raised not a lot of money to start, built the company for a number of years in the product started getting really, um, really high adoption had presumably great economics, uh, relative mm-hmm. to their costs. Uh, and then they raised a lot of money at very high valuations from venture firms, but they skipped all the stuff in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> they went from an, from a pre-seed to a, to an H, uh, real, yeah. real quick. And exactly. I mean, do you, do you think that that, so the idea of like startup equals growth, that is for a company that is looking to essentially own a majority of a market and, re- and they really need the scale, you know, economics to make their business work. Is that where we start to see that, you know, kind of mantra take hold in the kind of investing landscape? Um, I would say probably the, <laughs> well, there probably are, uh, two factors at play here as there always are in any sort of investing <laughs> environment. There's the fundamentals and then there's the psychology. <laughs> so right. on the fundamentals side, um, I think the reason to raise so much money, uh, and build a company unprofitably quickly in pursuit of growth is if you're worried about competition, which in most most areas you should be these days because there are a lot of startups out there and there's a lot of competition and the ones that capture the market first typically end up in a better position than the laggards. Um, in some markets though, you just don't have a lot of competition or you have something like, um, like the podcasting industry is really a great example of this. It's more like co-opetition, like more podcasts, even more podcasts doing the same topic as you isn't really going to hurt you. It's only going to help you. Um, so in those cases, I don't think you actually need that much funding. (laughs) Um, uh, now the psychology piece of this though, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, particularly sort of bold and brash, uh, entrepreneurs in the typical (laughs) Silicon Valley mindset, uh, they like to measure, uh, their, um, uh, the worth of their companies and their progress and especially versus all their peers and raising a lot of money at a high valuation is a Great Very way to do it. Nice boost to your ego. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. So I think that is at least 50% of what's at play with all of this <laughs> fundraising. <laughs> do you have any thoughts on those recent regulatory headwinds that have been impacting, you know, big platforms on the gig economy like Uber and Lyft uh, and what, what that means for funding going forward? Yeah. Well, um, as listeners may know, uh, the most recent election, um, uh, the Proposition 22 here in California was a major major moment for this uh with Mm -hmm. gig economy platforms um you know good and bad but the outcome of it was you know california for people who don't live here has one of the craziest state uh uh, governance procedures anywhere in the nation where (laughs) a lot of really important stuff gets voted on directly by the electorate in these propositions that happen in -hmm. every election you know most other states operate as a republic where like the you know, the, the legislatures that the people elect make the laws and decide on the laws and vote on them in California for stuff. It's a democracy where like 
everybody votes on a lot of this important wow. stuff, um, which is just nuts in its own right. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, the quick history on this is a, a couple of years ago, uh, the California state legislature uh, put forth this um, this set of rules called AB5. And in AB5, they mandated that um, freelancers, and in particular, it was targeted at the gig economy platforms, they were going to have to become full-time employees. And that would have meant all sorts of con- consequences, regulatory consequences for these platforms. Uh, they all banded together to fight it, and they funded putting forward Proposition 22. Proposition 22 undoes AB5 and creates a clear uh, long-term you know, pathway for gig economy uh, laborers to stay as independent contractors. That passed in California. So it's kind of like a free and clear regulatory highway for the gig economy platforms right now in California. And their hope is that this is going to set precedent that's going to come to most of the rest of the country, if not all the rest of the country. Um, It's super complicated, though. Like, I don't, you know, there's some real reasons uh, that I think to support what happened with Prop 22. There's some real reasons to be upset about it. Um, So it's complicated. But uh, Net is, you know, these companies together in aggregate, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, uh, Postmates and the like, they all joined in, spent over $200 million lobbying for Prop 22 to pass. Um, it, this was a major, major fight for them. And we'll see how this plays out in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And I guess even more broadly, because we know that like, uh, you know, tech keeps going in front of Congress, right? We just had Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg go again in front of Congress. Uh, yes. um, like just, it seems like in this environment and going forward now, like separating, you know, uh, politics and tech is going to be very difficult to do, especially when, when, when it comes to thinking about like building a company. I, I, have, I have to imagine when, you know, Yahoo first started way back in the day, they weren't thinking about, you know, any sort of government regulation coming in uh, to like their business. They were going to yeah. build this thing and see what happens. So like as you're going through, I guess maybe like the discovery process or working with a, a potential new founder, is this becoming more of a conversation of things to be aware of and kind of plan for, uh, for startups as just one more thing on the checklist they have to do just given these changing, you know, environment that we're in. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, you're right for a long time, tech and Silicon Valley and startups, you know, thought that we could all operate sort of outside of politics. Right. <laughs> and here we are off in California doing our own thing. And, you know, Washington, what's that? Uh, those days are long over, <laughs> yeah. long over. Um, you know, now in the social media companies case, like Facebook, Twitter, and all these congressional hearings, like, Woo, what a situation <laughs> that is. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think though, you know, look, Silicon Valley and company, but I'm not saying I agree with this. I, I just say it kind of is what it is. It's a very pragmatic place and, and generally a pretty libertarian place. And I think the approach that most companies and investors are taking to this is on the one side, like, yeah, now you got to pay attention to regulation and government and politics and that costs money and that costs lobbying. On the other hand, really how people are thinking about this is it's a playing offense mode. Like playing defense is, hey, we got to spend money on this. The playing offense is, well, actually, okay, if we're going to spend money on this and we're going to lobby and we're going to make our voices heard, what do we want? Like what do we want to have happen here? And so I think a lot of companies are um, now thinking about it in, in in that mode. And Prop 22 and what Uber and Lyft and DoorDash have done is like, case in point number one it's like okay government's going to come in and regulate us well what do we want to have happen here's the set of rules that we want 
okay, let's put $200 million worth of lobbying forward and get this passed. And now they're in a much more free and clear regulatory environment than they were before the whole thing. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I would suspect that you're going to see a lot more former politicians and former lobbyists, former people from Washington start coming out to Silicon Valley and joining companies, joining venture firms as uh, as advisors and, and roles directly within companies doing this sort of thing. I can, I kind of think that that might be a benefit. You know, if there's yeah. one thing 29 or 2020, whatever year it is now, <laughs> uh, has has taught us is this 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 idea of unintended consequences. And totally. The I almost think that sometimes the technology companies, the startups, the people like that are building, you know, they have the foresight and or I mean, I'm I'm going to assume they have the foresight and the knowledge to, you know, maybe enact or suggest, you know, plans or rules or, or, or maybe even regulations that'll be ben- more beneficial than, you know, a clamshell reaction of just kind of cutting things off. And then, you know, that being, you know, overall, like a, a net negative to the entire ecosystem. So that could be a really interesting kind of shift into how regulations are going to be developed now that yeah. if we're seeing technology companies play a bigger role in what they want it to look like, which I think is probably a good thing versus just kind of, you know, going along with whatever happens to come out of, you know, um, yeah. DC. Well, and I think there's also a, a another side of this coin is a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley has woken up and realized like, Hey, the government is a pretty big customer. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> um, and so you've got company, you know, SpaceX has been doing this forever, but SpaceX, Palantir, uh, Andrew, uh, which is Palmer Lucky, the, um, founder of, uh, of Oculus, his new company, it's a drone defense company. Uh, they're selling to the government, they're selling government contracts and that requires being in Washington <laughs> in a big way. So, um, I think the worlds are just going to blend even more. Fantastic. Well, David, to to end this conversation it has been such a pleasure. Um, do you have any advice for for companies that are looking to invest in innovation? Um, anything else, you know, whether that's build, whether that's buy, whether that's just like getting the right people in place, a framework, a mindset. I mean, whatever you have, you know, what are just some of those takeaways that some of our brands should be thinking about? As you know, we know um, innovating is you know a key to keeping business relevant um, in the long term. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I would have is that, um, Silicon, one of the greatest things about Silicon Valley, (laughs) there are plenty of bad things too, but one of the best (laughs) things is it is a very open place. Uh, and Mm -hmm. these days, especially post COVID, uh, post pandemic Silicon Valley is a mindset, uh, as much as it is, as it is a place, uh, and, uh, exists on the internet as much as, as much as it does in Northern California. Uh, and so I think the biggest thing is just get in involved, steep yourself in it. Um, Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts. There's so many great technology podcasts out there. Uh, watch YouTube, you know, Andreessen puts all of their content from the Andreessen summit, the A16Z summit out there. It's not hard to learn, um, from from all the people doing this about what's going mm-hmm. on so i would say that's the the biggest thing is just steep yourself in it um and and then you know in terms of investing and in, and in being part of the ecosystem or acquiring companies um i i would suggest similarly get involved be open uh silicon valley also operates on a principle of um helpfulness and reciprocity there's there's unlike uh sort of you know my days in new york and the new york ecosystem (laughs) there's a belief here that uh 
doing something, introducing to somebody, something to someone, helping somebody make a sale, making a connection, making an introduction, mm-hmm. uh, you're always paying it forward. And yep. so you don't expect anything in return right away. You still expect something in return. You <laughs> yeah. just play the long game. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that's the biggest mistake that a lot of outsiders make when they come into the industry here is they, uh, they're not used to playing that long game. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you come to, to the Valley with that mindset, that helps. So whether that's investing, you know, not to invest in a company and expect, uh, expect to get your dollars back the next year, um, you know, or to expect to get any dollars back from that company at all. This is actually a big mindset shift. I think even that sometimes people within Silicon Valley have a hard time realizing it's like losing money is, is part of making money here. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. uh, when the way startups work is a very small number of them return a very large number of dollars and a lot of them return zero dollars. So when you're investing and you lose your money, that's actually fine because on the ones where you make money, you're going to make so many hundreds of times more than what you invested. It'll make up for all the losers. Now, the consequence of that is that it's the relationships that matter because the people who started the losers might start tomorrow's winners. <laughs> yep. And so that's how this whole long-term game plays out. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I always look at it from like a frame of media is like a, a, a test and learn environment where you have like you, like you give yourself permission to fail. Yeah. Whether like whatever it whatever it might be, I think you know it's okay if the maybe like the KPI doesn't hit what you wanted or like the test goes in another direction. It's like you've learned, you've iterated, and you have like like continue to move on. And it's like that's the the doing and trying. I think is what's going to make that long term success of where you maybe you, like you try three companies and the fourth one is like ah that's the the marketing tool or the media platform or the investment or whatever that is like that we've been looking for. And we've refined it over these past three failures to really understand what we're trying to do and those like limitations. Uh, cause I think a lot of time it's just learning and, um, you know, putting yourself out there is what makes it all, um, you know, super successful. hundred percent. So when you look at corporate investment, how do you see that changing or is there a, a strategy or a playbook that, you know, a lot of our brands might want to think about uh, if they have corporate venture arms uh, to kind of, you know, improve their their returns or they're just like the success they see uh, through that corporate venture arm. Yeah, it's um, it's a good question and totally related to this, too. Like the I think uh, particularly on the investing side, Silicon Valley, like we were saying, works at its best when everybody is very long-term focused mm-hmm. uh, and willing to lose money, willing to play the multi-turn game. And not that the people within corporate venture don't want to do that too. The problem with corporate venture when you invest in early stage companies is you often get a misalignment versus the interests of the company itself, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, the corporation itself. Um, it can be hard culturally and financially within a company to carve off this unit and say like, Hey, we're going to do this unrelated stuff. That's going to be in a very long time horizon. And yeah, we'll probably lose a lot of money. (laughs) Um, so I tend in general when corporates invest there, there are counter examples to this, of course, but in general, when corporates invest at the early stages of a startup, those problems get more exacerbated. I I think Mm -hmm. it's much better and you see much more success when, corporates invest later in growth rounds of companies that are already already established already operating mm-hmm. one because it's going to be uh less um 
less risky, <laughs> less likely yep. to lose money to closer time to liquidity and to, and to exits and returns. But also three, probably most important is that the best relationships that happen there are when there's a business relationship between the startup you're investing in and the corporate itself. And with early stage startups, even if you do put a business relationship in place, it's like the really early companies are not ready to like absorb <laughs> a big contract with with right. a corporate yet. But when you have a company that's five years old or so already doing 50 million in revenue, uh, they have the infrastructure to actually do make that relationship right. work right. So I think I think it makes sense to me that something like what you've seen with Comcast, where it's going to become more with fully within corp dev probably going to be deploying fewer bigger checks that makes a lot more sense to me so david with that thank you so much for coming on floor nine how can our listeners get in touch with you anything else to plug <laughs> well the best way is uh listen to the acquired podcast there you go uh, acquired our website is acquired.fm or you can find us just by searching acquired in any podcast player and we have well over 100 episodes of case studies on these companies and how they grew um and then if you really want to get involved, uh, we have a Slack community um, that you can join. Uh, just go to our website. There's a button to join the Slack community there. And we have uh, we have about 5,500 people that are, uh, including yourself, Scout. Yeah, really I'm in it. I'm the number one advocate. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> and, fantastic. Uh, it's a great place to interact with other folks in the, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Yeah, it's great. Well, awesome. Well, David, thank you so much. Listeners, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.